The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Dee, thank you very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the stretch run and beyond. What the last days of the year might hold for your money as we close out a tough run for stocks. Will next year be any better? Does how we end this year have any bearing on what happens next? We discuss and debate that with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Shannon Sakosha, Richard Saperstein, and right here at Post 9 at the New York Stock Exchange, Liz Young and Jim Labenthal. Safety of the markets were basically highs of the day, thereabouts. Dow Jones Industrial Average, good for near 400 points, one and a quarter percent. S&P, a bit stronger than that. It's the NASDAQ, the big winner today, uh, which is higher by two and three quarters percent. It's having one of its worst Decembers of all time. Certainly going to be in the top five, it looks like, no matter what happens today. Um, But that's where we'll begin, Liz. Most have moved on. Most people have moved on from thinking about what, you know, the final couple of days are going to hold for this year and you're thinking about next. Do you think it has any bearing how we finish to how we start the new year? Well, I mean, sentiment carries over and, and sentiment doesn't necessarily care that we crossed a certain day in the calendar. I would, I would caution people, and I've said this a couple times over the last few weeks, don't have short-term memory. So if we have a good day, don't let it make you believe that we're out of the woods. Being down before today, 7.3% in the S&P when we were supposed to have seasonality wins at our back is pretty bad. And I think if we finish the year in that camp where we're down more than 7%, even more than 6% in one month, that sentiment's going to carry into 2023. I think the risk here is that the consensus seems to be, all right, we're going to have a bad first half, good second half. I actually think the bigger risk then is that we trudge through 2023 and we've got this sort of lasting recessionary behavior and we can't quite make progress. That the whole year is going to be kind of muted? Well, I still think we have a stab downward that's pretty dramatic in the first part of the year. I would even say the first quarter, maybe even before the end of January we do that. And then... What happens is you look at, you know, an average recession lasts 12 to 18 months. If that's the case, and let's say the recession starts in the first quarter, we've still got a long way to go. And if the market can't quite get out of the way, then you could end up in this sort of sideways fashion. Jim Piper Sandler today says if the market fails to rally during this time, it has been a precursor for lower prices, that there is, in fact, a follow through to Liz's point. Sentiment's been so bad that you just get if you don't can't can't get anything going to end the year. Uh, it doesn't portend well for the beginning. Yeah, I, it's hard to argue against that. Um, I will tell you, as an individual investor, as a professional money manager, I'm not sinking a lot of teeth into that. It's not. It doesn't move me. And here, here's why. I'll just give an example today. The Nasdaq, as you mentioned, Scott, is up hard, right? Up 2.7 percent as we're talking right now. The Dow, which has been crushing things for months, is only up 1.2 percent. And if I look at some key industrial components, they were negative earlier today. So Boeing and Deer. I mean, Boeing's had a great run. Deer's had a great run. They were negative today. And I was thinking about 
about that. And I was thinking, okay, today people want to buy the NASDAQ and they're using funds from what's worked over the last few months. I think that's a reasonable <laughs> conclusion from what's going on today. But the problem is it's meaningless to me. It's not something that would change my stance either on industrials or NASDAQs or the markets overall. So what I'm saying to you, Scott, is I agree with what you said and what Liz said. It's not a great sentiment right now. Um, and, and I wish we were ending on a more positive note. Of course, today's good. We'll see tomorrow. But what I'm also saying is it's not really going to matter to me too much as I look forward a year from I mean, now. Shannon, sentiment, to Jim's point, to use that word, uh, is historically awful. <laughs> I bring up a stat from Bespoke, which underscores everything. They did their individual investor survey and in terms of bullish sentiment. This year, 2022, will be the first year in the history of that survey. Now, that's since 1987. That bullish sentiment was below its historical average every week of the year. It goes to now the the peak of the stock market was, of course, the very beginning of the year. And it's been down a lot. Uh, ever since that. So, you know, it's skewed a little bit. But nonetheless, it gives you an idea, to Liz's point, you are entering a new year with sentiment being pretty bad. Well, it makes a lot of sense, Scott, that sentiment is so bad because we are asking for a belief in resiliency, not just for the consumer, but for corporate uh, management. We're looking for consumers, corporations, uh, to be able to operate in a resilient, in an environment that requires resilience, a resilience that they have not had to face in both, you know, higher interest rates and higher costs in 2023. And so it makes sense that the sentiment is poor because visibility over the course of the next 12 to 18 months, to Liz's point, um, certainly seems to be uh, one of two problems. One, the Fed remains very, very tight, um, and we see continued stretching of financial conditions to even tighter levels, or we enter into a recessionary environment, and the Fed probably doesn't act fast enough to provide that additional accommodation. And so I guess this resiliency really comes back to these wide ranges in terms of earning expectations for this year. Um, we are looking at anywhere from 200 to 235, with a multiple from 15 to 18, right? That's a pretty wide range, and it really requires you to determine which of these companies and which of parts of the consumer behavior will be resilient in 2023, that's going to, that's why there's such a wide range and that's why there's so much uncertainty in terms of institutional investors going into next year. Rich, speaking of wide ranges, they certainly are that for the strategists who are trying to predict what this next year is going to hold. You've got the Tom Lees of the world, whose target, I believe, is around 47.50. I don't know what you know Jim Labenthal has set for the new year, if anything, at this point. But the low, you got lows of like 3,300 on the street. Wall Street doesn't have any idea what's going to happen in the new year. It just speaks to the level and degree of uncertainty that Shannon just articulated exists. Yeah, well, the market continues to price in a pain-free disinflation. And if we look at the last uh, nine months, we've had declining leading economic indicators. We've had 12 months of declining uh, home builder index prints. Uh, M2 growth is screeching to a halt. And we're on track for analysts ultimately to take an ax to 23 earnings. So all this uncertainty will basically lead to lower stocks in 23. Now in the Q1, we'll likely get some positive prints in terms of uh, inflation coming down, Fed moderating their uh, increases in the tightening campaign, 
So that could lead to some short-term market exuberance. But in the end, the market has to face the fact that earnings are going to be marked down, and that's going to lead to lower stock prices in 23. Are you as negative as you've been? And, and I think the last time we spoke, and maybe the time before that, you made the point, and for those who you know haven't followed you as closely as I have, obviously, uh, you at one point had more cash than you've ever had, I believe, as a, a money manager, uh, as an investment advisor. Is that still the case? Yeah, so if you look at an average client allocation where, let's say they have 50% in stocks, let's say earlier in the year we moved into 40% in stocks, and we replaced that, that cash with bonds. Right now, there's great opportunity in the bond market because if you ascribe to the fact that the Fed is slowing the economy, that's going to lead to lower interest rates on the long end of the curve. So long-term bonds here are attractive if you want to look out past what's going to happen given this Fed action. Well, I see you buying some stocks, though. Um, now, <clears throat> albeit areas that have either done, done you know, actually both areas have done well. You bought Northrop Grumman, new, uh, last week. So defense stocks have done quite well, certainly relative to the market. And obviously, oil prices and energy stocks have energy stocks are the best performing group by a million miles. And you bought more Exxon. Can you take me through those two? Yeah. So keep in mind that energy's had a great run, but <clears throat> energy is generating 11 percent of the profits of the S and P, but it only commands five percent of the market cap. So anywhere you look in the energy sector, you're looking at anywhere of operating cash flows of. 10 to 25 percent and free cash flows anywhere from let's call it 8 to 16 18 percent so if i'm looking for a sector where i'm going to have copious amounts of free cash flow and i'm going to be insulated from market volatility uh, i'm going to choose the oil patch now the argument against that is that if we get into a slowing economy Demand for oil will go down, and that will impact these companies. True, but I still really like the free cash flow of that sector. You know, Liz, if we think about the kind of sectors that are going to work, uh, the sectors that have worked this year, I'm wondering if you, if you think that they will again. The outperformance, for example, of utilities and healthcare <clears throat> relative to the S&P 500 has been the most dramatic in decades. Staples have also outperformed the, the broader market. Some would say, well, that's great. They were nice places to be, but now they're too expensive. So you got, you know, those may be, may, may be too expensive. Mm -hmm. Then I got tech, which is a huge question mark. Uh, what do you, where, where do you want to be in, in, a, in right. a still cautious and uncertain environment? So, I mean, those, those sectors are classically defensive. Probably not surprising that they've done well in a bad year. Until the market does get back down to what I would consider oversold conditions where the bears get exhausted. And, and look, I've been a bear. I'm exhausted with myself. I'm, I'm tired of saying it. Right. But it's the truth. And we're not done yet. So those sectors probably continue to do OK until we get that behind us. I think tech will struggle through at least the first half of 2023, because as we've reiterated over and over ad nauseum, the Fed is going to stay tighter for longer. One thing I, I want people to think about, though, is that the Fed's projection, so what they tell us they're going to do with rates, 
have to assume a relatively linear pattern, meaning they have to assume that inflation is going to come down in a linear pattern. They assume that economic data is going to come down in a linear pattern. They're not going to work in a recession into their projections, right? I'm willing to bet that something bigger happens before that in the midst of their so-called linear pattern that's going to pull their reaction function forward, and they'll have to do something. That still doesn't necessarily save tech. So on the other side of a big drawdown, I would be in classic cyclical sectors, things like financials, industrials, discretionary, semiconductors even, small caps, right? That kind of stuff. And I do think that that's what's going to lead us out. And you'd ra- So you'd rather be a little early thinking that that's what's going to lead, that's going to do worse going in, but it's going to be the first out and will outperform on the other side. Y- sure. I mean, I'd, I'd rather be early yes, I guess, then then miss it completely. And something like financials, for example, has already been punished. So how much further down can it really go? I'm okay with buying when it's down 25%. It might get down to 35%, but then you wait for it to come back on the other side. I mean, Jim, in terms of technology, I, I mentioned going into today, the NASDAQ was on pace for its worst December ever. Now, with the pop that we're experiencing right now, it no longer is going to hold. Now, who knows what the last couple, you know, to the, the hours that are left today and tomorrow are, are going to hold. But it just underscores the kind of year that has been for tech, which has been miserable. For, for the biggest to the smallest to the higher valuations <laughs> to the middle valuations, the technology trade has just been a killer this year. And I'm thinking about something you said yesterday, which I didn't get a chance to come back to. You said, I think, uh, these companies have executed well. Do you remember saying that yesterday? Pretty much, I mean, the companies, and I'll say it if, if you didn't say it, these companies have executed well. Their share prices have done terribly, which means this is about valuation in terms of higher interest rates. Now, I don't see um, large cap tech, mega tech, the Apples, Googles, uh, Amazons of the world, I don't see them falling down on their faces going forward in terms of execution. So it still comes down to this multiple. If I look at Apple at 20 times forward earnings, Google, and I'm doing this from memory, maybe 18, 19 times forward earnings, I'm thinking to myself, they can do just fine. They can do just fine in the year ahead. What does just fine mean? Like 8 10% over the course of the year. To a point that Liz was making, which I think everybody knows I totally agree with, I see bigger gains ahead in the classic cyclicals, the industrials, the financials. The one thing we differ on, which is fine, is I don't see the pending dip that you see coming in economic activity. I think we're going to be more linear. I know you use that word as something to be aware of. Um, but I, and, and the reason I see things linear is because I look at the strength of the consumer right now. MasterCard gave us 7.6% year-over-year growth in holiday spending. The consumer is the core of this economy. This economy is the core of the global economy. That's what keeps me thinking. We maybe not have that that dip that everybody's worried about in the first half. Rich, what about from a sector standpoint? Um, We can take tech first. Uh, Obviously, given your movement within your portfolio, you don't believe that tech's going to do well in the new year. You trimmed Apple for the first time ever a couple of months ago, and you sold Amazon in September. Well, we had to lighten up on tech because of our overall thoughts on the market. But to Jim's point, you take a company like uh, Microsoft, their uh, free cash flow since 2019 has gone from 30 to 61 billion. You've got Apple's free cash flow going from 60 to 110 billion over the last three years. And all these companies are simply executing and increasing their free cash flows. That's after very, very large amounts of CapEx. So at some point, these companies, everyone's going to puke them out and they're going to get very valuable on a multiple of cash flow. 
Right now, that multiple of cash flow is averaging anywhere from 4 to 6%. So I am not as negative on, on the tech sector as it might appear. I just was so overweight, I had to trim it out. But, but what do you think of, of Jim's overall view? I ask you because I, I, I don't know of two people who have been on this, this show together at the same time. I mean, Weiss obviously has been extraordinarily negative for a while on the market, and he's been correct. But you've got more cash for the most part than, than you ever have. Um, you've been a batten down the hatches guy for months. Your view is decidedly negative on what lies ahead. And you just heard Jim articulate the reasons why he believes that none of that's going to come to fruition. He doesn't believe in a recession. He barely believes in an economic slowdown. Well, clients of Treasury Partners have made copious amounts of money in the stock market over the last several decades. And we get to choose when we're going to put money to work. And this is an environment where the landscape is dramatically changing from the last 15 years of a zero interest rate environment where everything went up to going forward where we have a higher structural interest rate, which increases the discount rate for future earnings and is going to put more pressure on choosing the right stocks. At the same time, there's tremendous opportunities for our clients where we asset allocate in the bond markets. So I don't have to only focus on one asset class, which is the stock market. We're very comfortable now reducing our exposure and owning bonds, which have done exceptionally well since we started putting them on in September. You taking issue with how I characterize your view? You're the one who said, you're the one who you use, you even use your hand. You did a hand motion of how the economy is just going to stay strong. Scott, you're right. I didn't misrepresent your view in any way, shape, or form. You are correct. You are correct. I had a moment there. I was like, I was like, well, should have some. You're like, what? Did I really say that? And you're like, oh, yeah. Wait wait, wait a second here, okay? Because, yeah, on the face of it, I'm like, wait, is that really what I believe, that we're not going to have a slowdown? Here's, Here's what I'm saying to you and everyone, the data that keeps coming in keeps telling me we're not. Now, you and anyone else and Rich, who I, I really love Rich. I mean, Rich is, Rich is a caricature of the bond managers that I literally grew up with. I mean, I feel at home with Rich, okay? But the data keeps coming in with where jobless claims are today, that MasterCard data uh, that, I just, that I just quoted, it keeps, to, uh, you know, where the Atlanta Fed GDP now is, uh, 3.7%. And I know it's crazy. That's why I did the double take with you. It's because I know it sounds crazy, but this is what the data is saying. Now. Yes, now. Yes, I'm with you. It is Liz. But can I, can I say one tiny more thing? Real quick, because I want because the, uh, I'm going to allow the objection. We've been coming at me about how it's going to change It's going to change for nine months. I mean, I just want to say that. It's yeah. floor is yours, m'lady. Okay. I, but I do think some of it has changed. And, and you have to group them into what changes at the same time as the market and what changes after the market. So continuing jobless claims have decidedly moved True upward, point. And they continue to move upward. And they haven't, they haven't really come off of that trend, right? Look at things, um, retail spending, for example. Retail spending came in at its lowest level in 11 months. That was for November. MasterCard know, just gave you December, and it was really good. OK. But we've got spending at, we'll call it all-time highs, savings at all-time lows, credit card balances from something like MasterCard going up. That means somewhere a consumer is running out of money. There's no reason to spend on a credit card so much if you have all this pent-up savings. So I think it's in a different part of the economy. And then you have to look at 
initial jobless claims maybe haven't shown it yet, but it takes a little while, right? We heard about all the layoffs from tech. Tech is a really tiny part of the labor force. The layoffs that are now coming through in the news are what are going to show up in maybe December data that we don't get until January. Your Honor, we're at an impasse. We are, which is why we go to, to <laughs> Shannon, our, our next counselor, to make the, the presentation on, you know, whose side sounds more reasonable, I'll use that word, reasonable for how we should think about the market in the new year. It's, it's remarkable to me that we could have such diametrically opposed views based on the very same information. Well, it also end up with uh, very similar expectations, I think, in that in terms of those uh, range of outcomes that we talked about. I, I want to sort of take a little bit of what Liz and Jim and, and Rich have been saying and sort of shift gears away from not necessarily just the consumer. But I talked about resiliency earlier. Let's talk about capital allocation. One of the things that Jimmy and I agree on is that one of the catalysts for next year for the U.S. economy is going to be this manufacturing reshoring, this emphasis on CapEx um, to be able to bring us up to production, whether it's for pharmaceuticals or um, parts. And the other thing that I want to think about is how many of these management teams have been facing capital allocation decisions in an environment where they actually have to make a decision. Um, and I actually, I think that's going to be a catalyst or perhaps a detriment all the way from big tech companies that aren't going to be able to spend on these pet projects to manufacturing companies that are really going to be looking at how do we build that next plant? How much automation needs to be involved? What's the workforce going to have to look like? So I think we think about GDP. We obviously are concerned about the consumer because it's the biggest part. We're not going to have any sort of fiscal spend that's going to add to GDP next year. We're, we're not probably going to have anything positive from a housing market perspective. So is the variable really this CapEx and this capital allocation? Poor capital allocation hurt the energy companies companies for decades. And I'm interested to see how other companies grapple with that as they're looking at more limited and much more expensive capital over the next couple of years. That's where you can right. start to determine, not just at the sector level, but at the company level. Okay. Coming up, Tesla shares, they're rallying today. Coming up, what one of the stock's biggest bulls thinks of it going into 2023. That's next in our call of the day. And later, broadcasting legend Al Michaels is back ahead of Thursday Night Football on Amazon Prime. We are back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started.
Tesla shares are rebounding again today, paring back nearly all of this week's losses. Uh, been a tough run, though, for the stock. Was down seven days in a row. Now today, Morgan Stanley's Adam Jonas is out with a note. He is sticking with his overweight rating, cutting the price target, though. $250 from $330. He still thinks there's more than 100% upside from here says the pullback and shares the re-rating, as he has called it, is an opportunity. We've made it our call of the day because it really has been the stock of the moment, stock of the week. Worst, what, worst month, worst quarter, worst year on record for those shares. Rich Saperstein, how do you view this one? Well, I don't own the stock and I've never uh, owned it. I just don't like a business where you don't have uh, more recurring revenues, uh, less competition, uh, and a more modest valuation. So let me ask, let me ask you this, though. Um, and I asked the group yesterday this the same question. And, uh, you know, we, we publicized the fact that you're, you're one of the top-ranked financial advisors in this country by Barron's. You have a lot of clients that you manage money for. If someone says to you, look, I, I follow Adam Jonas, okay? I, I like his research. I think this guy knows what he's talking about. And I still believe in Elon Musk. And the valuation has come down from 80 times... Uh, at its peak to uh, under 20 times now, why isn't it a, a good bet? Let's take a flyer on it, man. What, what would you tell them? Well, we don't like taking flyers with capital that has been hard earned. And uh, we just don't want to own names that are selling at lofty multiples. And I don't really care what the analysts have to say. It comes down to what is the operating cash flow, free cash flow, What's the multiple on it? What's the recurring revenues? And what's the competitive landscape? And I don't think any one of those meet any of the metrics that we'd look for, uh, irrespective of a very qualified analyst like the stock. Shan, what about you? Well, I think the, this crisis of, of confidence is based on the fact that Tesla's having an identity crisis. If you go to a few years ago, Scott, we kept hearing it's a technology company. It's a technology company. Nobody wants to be a technology company right now. And so the problem is, is that the valuation is re-rating along with all the other tech stocks. And then people are looking at it the way that Jimmy, to his credit, has always explained this stock. It's a car company. And so then if you look at the valuations, not only is it still expensive compared to technolo other technology companies, to the S&P 500, but certainly to car companies. Uh, you know, I think the whole Twitter, Musk, um, it's just compounding some of this weakness. But I think this reset is really, you know, benefiting from being a technology company on the way up and and being harmed by it on the way down. And maybe, Jim, that that's the debate that's going to be had for a long time to come now, whether it should be valued as a car company or whether it should get a premium to that because of the kind of technology that it has, the first mover advantage that it has had in electric vehicles, a place where the legacy OEMs want to be, yeah. Tesla's already there. I think that is the debate. Is it a car company or is it a technology company? I believe it's a car company, and I do a comparison to the GMs and Fords, which are, or VWs or anybody else that are making big inroads into electric vehicles and into autonomous driving and the like. Um, there are other advantages, like the lack of a dealership network that Tesla uh, has. But I think the way investors should look at this is use historical analogies, okay? Because you can. this is 
not the first time a high flyer has come down to earth. So is this going to be, go back 22 years ago, is this going to be Amazon, which crashed and then went on to be just a hero the last 22 years? I don't think so. Is it going to be a Cisco Systems, which was the poster child for high-priced stocks in 2000, came down and has been a steady eddy ever since? I think it's actually going to be that. What I don't think it's going to be is to pick an obscure company that once was an obscure. Sienna was a $1,000 a share company 22 uh, years ago. It's now a $50 a share company. I don't think that's what's going to happen, but that's the choose-your-own-adventure as far as where we go from here. Amazon, Cisco, or Sienna? I say Cisco. Up next in your 2023 playbook, Rich Saperstein presents his best ideas for the year ahead. Halftime's back right after this. Grade my trade. Send us your latest stock move, and the investment committee will debate it and grade it. Email us at askhalftime at cnbc.com or tweet us, hashtag GradeMyTrade. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Contessa Brewer. Here's the CNBC News update this hour. A huge surge in COVID cases in China, and yet the United Kingdom and France announced today they won't test visitors from China for the virus. Yesterday, Italy became the first European country to say it will test travelers arriving from there. The United States said earlier this week it will require proof of a negative test starting next week. The committee investigating the January 6th attack on Capitol Hill is withdrawing its subpoena of Donald Trump as its probe comes to a close. The panel asked for the former president to provide records relating to the insurrection, but now they say they've just run out of time. The committee released its final report last week, and it is set to dissolve January 3rd. Benjamin Netanyahu has been sworn in as Israeli prime minister earlier today. Netanyahu is set to lead the most far-right coalition government in the country's history. Just yesterday, the conservative party platform said its top priority now is expanding settlements in the disputed West Bank territory. Scott, I'll send it back to you. All right, Contessa, thank you. Mm -hmm. Contessa Brewer. I mentioned Rich Saperstein out with his best ideas for the year list. We got three stocks on this list. Rich, let's start with Microsoft. Why did it make your list? Well, Microsoft should be a core holding in anyone's portfolio because it's really the intersection of the cloud and software along with gaming. Um, they've had a 17% compound annual growth rate. As I mentioned previously, uh, cash flows have increased basically 100% over the last three years. And there's low cyclicality to the company. And I just think every investor should have some participation in the cloud. It's uh, you know, the major superhighway of the world. We mentioned one of your new buys uh, earlier in the show coming from the defense space, Northrop Grumman, Northrop Grumman excuse me. Uh, but Lockheed's on your list too for the new year, why? Well, Lockheed's uh, you know, come down in, from a PE basis from 24 down to 17, one of the lowest it's been trading at. And that's enabled the multiple of the cash flow 
it's selling at roughly 8% of cash flow. That plus the fact that they have a $140 billion backlog, again, $65 billion in annual sales, and they're right in the mix of what is being you know, sought after by all governments around the world that are increasing their defense budgets. They're delivering HIMARS over to Ukraine, and they're working, they're a leading proponent for the U.S. in hypersonics. Jimmy, these are, this one, both are in your wheelhouse, obviously, but um, I don't need you to tell me all the reasons why you like Microsoft, because they're probably similar to why almost everybody seems to like Microsoft. But what about this Lockheed? It's a good move? call. It's a good call. You own that and Raytheon, right? I own Boeing and Raytheon. Uh, oh, Boeing and Raytheon. When you, when you put all these together, there's a lot of overlap. And I, I, look, I'm just going to call it like it is. And I hate the way this sounds. But as, as Rich said, defense budgets are growing. And what are they growing for? Missiles, which you get in Lockheed Martin and you get in Raytheon. And airplanes, fighter jets, which you get in Boeing, which you get in Lockheed Martin and Northrop Grumman. Um, I, I hate the world that we're living in. But we're living in it and we've got to deal with it. And that's where there's going to be top line growth for the foreseeable future. Rich, we go back to energy too, Canadian Natural Resources, that's the last of your three. Tell us. Yeah, $63 billion oil company in Canada uh, largely completed its CapEx program. Now, if you look at the numbers, their operating cash flow is 22% a year. They spend a little bit on CapEx. They have 16% free cash flow, which is unbelievable. So what are they doing? They're reducing debt and they're returning it to shareholders. Their leverage ratio is very low at one times. Their extraction costs are roughly 30 bucks a barrel. And it's a great position company to own. All right. Well, thank you for the picks. By the way, next week on The Half, we're going to kick off our annual stock summit, debating the stocks and sectors the committee has the most conviction in for 2023. Coming up next, veteran play-by-play -play announcer, novice stock trader, investment enthusiast, Al Michaels. He joins us ahead of tonight's Cowboys-Titans game on Amazon Prime. Plus, our experts are getting ready to trade, well, to grade your trade. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. You can tweet us, use the hashtag grademytrade. We're right back. We're back. NFL playoff hopes on the line tonight as the Cowboys take on the Titans in the final game of Amazon Prime's inaugural season. Broadcasting legend Al Michaels is calling the play-by-play -play action, as he has all season long. Joins us live from Nashville ahead of the big games. Good to see you as always. Happy New Year to you. Judge, you, you introduced me as a novice stock trader. Would you, <laughs> would you find another adjective? I've been doing this for 35 years. Expert. Not particularly well, Expert. but I go way back, yeah. All right, expert, uh, uh, legendary. <laughs> How about that? You know, whatever. Tennis, Tennessee's got a lot more on the line tonight uh, than, than Dallas does. And who'd have thought, Al, that they'd be fighting it out with the Jaguars for the AFC South? Right. The way it looks right now, unless there's some crazy tie that comes into the mix over the next two games, next week's game between the, the Titans and the Jaguars will determine which of the teams goes to the playoffs. So they're going to be the, the, the last seeded team of the division champs and have to face a team that probably will have a better record in either Tennessee or Jacksonville next week. Meanwhile, for Dallas, if they can win their next two games, counting tonight's game and next week at Washington, and somehow the Eagles lost their last two, then the Cowboys would wind up winning the NFC East. So there's a lot at stake tonight, for, for, especially for Dallas. And for Tennessee, they're going to rest a lot of guys. 
but they've lost five in a row, and they want to get a little bit ahead of a steam uh, coming into that last game of the season. I'd love your take on the season itself. I mean, what, it's been so strange in, in so many different ways. The fact that, you know, Aaron Rodgers and, and Brady and, and Russell Wilson have hardly lived up to the historical standards that each has set. Uh, as it surpri- must have surprised you as well. Well, it has to a degree. I mean, Aaron seems to be on the uptick right now. And Brady won that game the other night, and that was big. It's not been a very good year, obviously, for Russell Wilson. But once again, Scott, I mean, the, the league is so wild and crazy and that people, it's, it's become a conversation piece every Monday morning and Tuesday morning around the country. This is why people love the NFL. It is so predictable, unpredictable that anybody who tells you they know what's going to happen, well, it's like, it's like picking stocks. They really don't know. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, the game's changed a lot. The way we consume it and the way we view it has obviously changed, as you know, better than most based on, you know, how you're calling the games and, and where you're doing it this year. How's the first season gone? And just what do you make of the evolution of the consumer, the viewer experience, if you will? I could not be prouder of, of the product that Amazon has been able to put out there this year. Remember, a year ago, you probably had two people, Jared Stacy and Marie Donahue, who were the only people trying to put this whole thing together, and they did. We put together uh, the talent, the production crew, Fred Gadelli, the producer, and I'll put up, I'll put the production up against any production that I've seen on on any uh, anybody's telecast over the past few years. So. I'm proud of the way everybody's come together. I mean, this was, we were launching this thing. Didn't know what it was going to be like. And, uh, you know, it looks like a major league big time game. And for Amazon, uh, they've really gone all in. The, the trucks are, the production trucks, state of the art, tremendous. People, you know, love to, to work here and, and be a part of Thursday Night Football. So, you know, on balance, I think it's been a hell of a year. Yeah, no, it's been fun to watch. I mean, some of the games have obviously been challenging and have left you exasperated on the air (laughs) at times, but it's been a fun watch with you and Herbie, uh, no doubt. And you know, look, I mean, you do this long enough, you you have a poor choice of words every now and then, which is how I refer to you as novice. I meant seasoned, seasoned stock trader. I'm I'm so seasoned. So anyway, (laughs) IBM, I got to be, I know Shannon's in in the IBM, as far as I know, right? That's going to be one of her picks. Yeah, you've been in so, it for 30 years? I've been in it, but you know, in, in the mid-90s or early 90s, that when I wore a, a novice stock picker, everybody owned IBM. And I have to tell you, like 20 times over the last three decades, I want to hit the sell button. That's all I want to do. Thank God this is the one year I didn't. When In, in the year of the tech wreck, it's the only stock, and you can take a look at it right there. It's up about 40 right now on the day and up almost 6% on the year. So I've been able to hold on, but it was, it was one of those things where, and I'm sure like a lot of people, you hold something and you're going, you, you're ready to sell it, but you just can't, and I'm glad I've held on. It's such a good lesson, too, right? It's up 6% year-to-date, quarter-to-date. It's had a nice run. Shan, what should Al do with with IBM here? Stock, as we said, he's, he's had for decades, and he's been tempted. Sometimes that, that finger's been on that sell button, but he hasn't pushed it. Yeah, this stock is all about execution, Al, and they're paying a dividend more than 4.5%, which is comparable to what we're getting in T-bills, which is a lot different than the rest of the, the stock universe. Um, IBM's 
the, the, the pride and joy of IBM is their consulting business. And as long as they can continue to innovate and potentially acquire different services for those uh, consultants to be able to refer their enterprise customers to, they're going to be able to continue to execute. This is just the first year, I think, of a multi-year story in terms of management execution, and I would definitely hold on to this here. Well, Al, and uh, here, here. it sounds to me like you're going to do that. Well, the last time we talked in September, you asked me what I was doing. And we, it wasn't a very good year to that point, and clearly hasn't been a good year, period. And I said I was going to take all of my cash and put it in cans in the backyard. Now, I wish I had, <laughs> but I have very high hopes for 2023. I hope you're right. I think a lot of us do. Uh, it's a challenging environment, as you know. We look forward to listening to you, watching you tonight. Uh, one of our all-time favorites. Al, thanks so much for making time for us. Love this show, my favorite show on TV. Well, you're our fave. We'll see you soon, buddy. Happy and healthy, okay? You got it, buddy. You too. All right, thanks. Up next, Mike Santoli has his midday word. We're right back. Welcome back to Halftime. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us here with his midday word. You're seasoned market commentator, too. All right, just for the record, you're not a novice anything. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, All right, so we're trying to put a a novice football commentator, though. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. What a silly choice of words on my part. But nonetheless, a couple days we're trying to put something together here. A little reprieve. Um, Again, I think you have to, you know, look at at it through the filter of um, stuff that was making new lows coming into today, right? So NASDAQ relative to the S&P, new lows coming into today. You know, high beta stocks relative to safer defensive stocks making new lows. So a little bit of relief. Um, You know, there was some some talk that it just is this mechanical uh, activity that we've been seeing right now. So much focus on these big hedged equity mutual funds that have options exposure and it's keeping the the market between these rails of 38.50 and 37.50. I think we got to get clear of that stuff and, and clear of the noise to find out what the real setup is. Um, I still think people are pretty defensively positioned. Yeah. Um, it's And I think that idea that week first half or week first quarter of next year uh, is the call, uh, you know, maybe is going to be challenged. I think that's, uh, that's what we set ourselves up for. And I think the fact that January 3rd of last year was a 100% change in the complexion of this market, I think has people thinking that things change more in the new year than they usually do. I'm trying to wonder what gets us out of the range that you were just talking about. We don't have a Fed meeting until no. Feb. So, you know, we got to wait. I mean, I'm not I guess sure anything. I mean, that range is pretty narrow, so it could be almost anything. It could just be a little bit of relief in the, in the mega caps that gets us there. But in terms of the real range, whatever that you want to call it, 4,100 to 37 or something like that, um, I don't really know. It does seem as if we're capped by recession is coming, uh, you know, expectations. And the floor, every time we've gotten in the mid-3000s, the market has looked a little bit cheaper. Uh, I keep pointing out the equal-weighted S&P is below 15 times earnings. Um, so, yeah, you had to some valuation work to do. Still maybe more, but it's not as if uh, the setup is what it was last year. We were much higher. All right. I'll see you in a few uh, for your last word. That's Mike Santoli. Up next, we're grading your trade. You can send them in as well. Find us on Twitter or email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. We're right back. bring your attention to some news regarding Southwest Airlines. The airline just issuing an update that they plan to return to normal operations with minimal disruptions starting tomorrow. 
shares are rebounding today, but it's been an extraordinarily tough set of days with all of those cancellations, uh, most of which were due to Southwest Airlines. Uh, so we'll see what happens now in the uh, next 24 hours or so. Let's do grade my trade here. Shannon, you're up first. Uh, it's from Glennon, Charleston, South Carolina. I own 600 shares of Costco at $488. It's dropping every day. Should I hold or sell? The losses are starting to pile up. Yeah, I, I would say longer term, this is going to be an A-minus trade. I think right now you're experiencing some pressure based on digesting, you know, potential consumer weakness next year. But remember, Costco has a subscription component as well as a very prescriptive uh, SKU management program. So they can really control their costs. At the end of next year, you're also going to see some margin improvement from their store brand as inflation starts to come down. All right, Rich Saperstein, next to you, Chris in the UK. All right, I bought Bank of America, $32.73 per share for the long term. What do you think about his trade? Well, as long as it's not the only stock in your portfolio, I'd continue to hold it. It's recently priced at 1.4 times book value. Return on equity has been around 15%, but they are subject to the economic whims of the U.S. So, uh, you know, the inverted yield curve can't be hurting them, but uh, I'd hold the stock if I wanted to hold the bank name. All right. Jimmy, to you next. From Bud G in Akron, Ohio, I recently bought Nucor, $135, anticipating government spending from the infrastructure bill, uh, bill next year. Please grade my trade. I've got to give them a solid A, and I've thought about this uh, the whole show, Scott. You so have, really? on my mind. <laughs> wow. Is it an A, an A minus? Look, it's the right sector to be, but I want them to get an A plus. I want Bill to get an A plus. To do that, you got to think about Nucor spending a lot on new plants. It doesn't control its own inputs, its own raw material. For that, you might look at another steel company. I'm not going to tell you what it is, but you probably know what it is. Oh, I see. I was thinking of that one uh, as you were talking about Nucor. Now, if he said he bought... Cleveland Cliffs, would you be giving an A plus? It is an A plus. I knew you were going to say that. But he gets an A. He gets an A. It's not an A minus. I mean, I thought about this. Oh, a you're a tough time. grader. All right. I got it. I got it. Keep your trades coming in. You can send us an email, halftime at CNBC.com. You can tweet us, as we mentioned, as well. We'll do final trades on the other side of this quick break. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, 4 o'clock Eastern overtime. Got a good show today. We got Rick Heitzman on all things tech at that Instagram, uh, Instacart, excuse me. The uh, Obviously, the markdown of the valuation there. We're going to discuss what his outlook is for 2023. Scott Croner with Cities 2023 Outlook and Victoria Fernandez joining us too. I'll see all of you then. Liz Young, your final trade. So my final, my final trades in December were sell consumer discretionary and then buy the two year. So my final trade today is now we wait and it's just cash. I think there's more downside to come uh, probably in January. All right, Jimmy Labenthal. Farmer well, Jim. I already mentioned it, but it just stares me in the face. Raytheon Technologies, uh, well-run industrial company. It's not just defense. It's also commercial aerospace, which continues to pick up with orders uh, for new planes that need engines uh, from Raytheon. I, I like the valuation as well. Okay. Shannon, what do you got for us? Estee Lauder, I'm not quite as convinced on COVID reopening in China, but this company will definitely benefit as, as Chinese uh, consumers go out and travel a bit more. 
Yeah, no, we didn't even discuss that, right? The implications of those new uh, restrictions uh, in Italy uh, and the United States from the CDC. That news coming out yesterday as we're thinking about what the reopening is going to mean to the global economy in, in the year ahead. Uh, Rich Saperstein, why don't you finish it off here with your final trade for us? Microsoft continues to be an anchor for investors that want exposure to the cloud and software, growing cash flows, and it's a great name to put away. Yeah, so it's uh, among those big tech names that uh, are up today. It's up about 2.5%. I'll see all of you in overtime a little bit. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.